From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy. And you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by Data Rails financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FP&A. We'll provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FP&A. Today, we are going to have Carl Seidman on the show. A little bit about Carl. I've known Carl for a couple of years. We had connected on LinkedIn, commented on each other's posts, and then November of 2020, he reached out to me and said, hey, I'm trying to actually meet some of these people I talked to online. Would you be open to doing a virtual connection? And I said, sure, you know, I'd love that. And we met and we've chatted a few times since. And you know, I was super excited when Carl agreed to be on the show. He's one of my favorite people on LinkedIn, one of the people I follow, and he's a great FP&A professional. So a little bit about Carl's background. He did his... Uh, bachelor's degree in finance and economics, a master's in accounting, started his career with PwC. And from there, he did some consulting, took a brief retirement year at the age of 32, came back and started his own uh, practice. He does FP&A advisory services and training for companies of all sizes. He's also part of the National Speaker Association. So Carl, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. We're super excited to have you. I mean, you know, uh, I've been looking forward to this for a while to have you on the show. So can you start by maybe just telling us a little bit about yourself and walk us through a little bit of your career? Sure. So over the last seven or so years, I've been the founder principal of Sideman Financial. Everything that this business focuses on is related to FP&A and business growth, revitalization and turnaround. So as you had mentioned, I work with companies of all sizes from small startups, some even Shark Tank funded companies to middle market organizations, and then also many of the Fortune 500 and some Fortune 100 companies. A lot of the work that I do is on FP&A advisory, so making sure that the FP&A function is working as intended, that it is structured as desired. I help with some technology solutions, making sure that people are upskilled in the way that they need and, and want to be. And otherwise, just take a very holistic and well-rounded look at the FP&A capabilities that an organization has. Prior to starting my own firm, as you had mentioned, I took about a, a year-long hiatus, traveled around the world to build this business. And then prior to that, I had a somewhat typical background in management consulting, largely focused on turnaround, restructuring, revitalization, and also intellectual property matters. Thank you for sharing a little bit of the background. Sounds like you've had some exciting company. I think you mentioned everything from Shark Tank to Fortune 500 in there. So probably everything in between. So, you know, you started your career with PwC, working in business analytics and strategy. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and how did that help prepare you for a career in FP&A? Right. At, uh, at PwC, so I'll, I'll take you back even a little bit further. So my education was in finance and economics. And I had come to the realization that I needed and wanted a deeper background in accounting because I recognize that finance is oftentimes dependent on accounting uh, to be more effective. And I felt I didn't have that education. So I got my master's degree and then a CPA. 
I had done an internship and audit at PwC and then also at Ernst & Young. Uh, I had gotten offers from both of those firms in audit, but I went back to them. I said, I don't want to be an auditor. What else do you have? So I had great relationships at PwC. Uh, I had done an internship in Detroit. But I said, look, I want to move to Chicago. And they had set me up with interviews for many practices within the advisory practice at PwC in Chicago. So I'd interviewed in due diligence and valuation, a group called dispute analysis and investigations, among others. But I was really turned on to what was going to be done in dispute analysis and investigations. I got paired with the national partner of intellectual asset management for all of PwC. And I got a lot of experience valuing patents and trademarks and copyrights and trade secrets and trade dress. And it was very analytical, obviously a lot with financial and business modeling and, and valuation, but also with writing, legal writing, and looking at business assets and problems in a very unique way. That partner who I was directly tied to was also partnered with uh, the head of business analytics and strategy at PwC, which in many ways was a third-party advisory group to Fortune 500 companies, where these companies were embarking upon certain initiatives or ventures of their own. And they would say, you know what? We want to have these external experts, these CPAs at PwC, vet our business model, vet these ventures and tell us what we need to know or maybe what we're not even considering. So very early in my career, I was able to take on some really, really unique projects that I wouldn't have encountered anywhere else. It gave me the skills, the background and exposure uh, that I don't know that I would have encountered anywhere else. No, it sounds like a great experience. I could see where you wouldn't get that in, but definitely wouldn't have got it in audit had you gone there. No. Right? <laughs> very, very different background. And I would say wise decision is I don't, you know, audit has never been an area I've wanted to be in. So I can appreciate wanting to do something a little different. So, you know, you talk about making that, you know, PwC and having some great experience there. What made you decide to leave and start your own practice? Like, how did that come about, you know, to start an advisory service firm in FP&A? Yeah, well, there was actually a, a, an intermediate step there in between PwC and starting my own practice. And around the time of the recession in 2007, 2008, I started just seeing the writing on the wall that business was drying up a bit, that the economy was contracting. At the same time, the partner who I had just mentioned, who I was directly tied into, he was reaching a mandatory retirement age. And so while business was contracting, he also in many ways turned off the spigot. I started to look around the firm for other opportunities, but eventually just decided it would be best for me to look elsewhere. I had joined up with a middle market boutique turnaround and restructuring firm because I thought to myself, well, what's going to be busy during a recession? Certainly distressed business consulting is one of them. So I had joined that firm and literally on day number two, I got paired up with the CEO and co-founder of the whole firm and got put on an extremely high profile engagement, turning around a very visible organization in, in a major metropolitan city. And when I was there, obviously, this was very intense, lots of hours, some really impactful work that I was doing. 
But towards the tail end of that experience, I had clients coming to me and saying, Carl, why don't you just go out on your own? You don't need to be doing this with a firm. You've got the skills, you've got the experience, you've got the network, you've got the maturity to be able to do this on your own. Why don't you go do that? And I remember coming back to those individuals, to those clients and saying, I don't know. I don't know that I have the skills. I don't know that I have the experience. I don't know that I have the network. And several of them said, if you need clients, if you need connections, you come to me and I'll connect you. And so ultimately I said, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to travel the world at the same time. And so I had taken a few months after leaving that firm to go to South America, to go to Southeast Asia, spend time obviously in Chicago as well. And by the time I had circled back to call, to end what I had called my first retirement, <laughs> I had around eight clients lined up and ready to go. So I had returned back to my base of Chicago, kickstarted the business, and it was hitting the ground running with eight clients. That's great. I mean, to have eight clients to start off, I know a lot of people starting a business, that's the biggest challenge, right? Getting the clients and kind of building it. So that's great. Can you talk a little bit about you know, I've always found it intriguing. I've watched your TED talk, just kind of your thinking on that first retirement. Maybe just take a minute and just talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So this was, you know, nothing that I, I thought all that intentionally about in terms of how I coined it, the first retirement. But I always asked myself in consulting, why is it that we had to go from project to project to project? Uh, oftentimes, projects overlapping with each other, but really not a whole lot of time just sitting on the bench. And the reality is, is if you are a salaried employee and you're just sitting on the bench, in many ways, you're, you're costing your employer money by doing that. And so I just thought to myself, well, rather than go from project to project to project or job to job to job, why not take some time off to refresh, revitalize, retool, and reposition for what's next. And so I had left my prior employer without anything else lined up. I had taken a, a one-way trip to Santiago, Chile, with no clients and, and no employment lined up, but with the intention of enjoying my travels, refreshing, but repositioning for what my future was going to be. Staying in touch with people, reaching out to those who I hadn't talked to in, in months or years and say, this is what I'm doing right now, but this is where I'm going in the future. And just from a philosophical point of view, seeing it as an alternative to the ultimate retirement is a lot of people say, well, I'm going to work really, really hard all throughout my life and then I'll get to my golden years of 65 and 70 and above and then I'm going to get to do the things I really, really want to enjoy. And there's nothing wrong with working your tail off during your most prosperous years. But I thought, well, why not take a little bit of time here and there for myself to do the things that I really want to do, but at the same time, sharpen the saw for what I'm going to be doing next. I often found that the challenge of you know, learning and studying and connecting while employed would require me to do that in the evenings after a very long day, potentially on the road. And I just didn't feel that I had the capacity nor even the, the, the focus to be able to do that. So the first retirement was able to combine all of those elements of taking time off to you know, revitalize myself, to retool and reskill, to reposition for what's next, and really be able to live my ultimate retirement sprinkled throughout my earlier life. 
I love that ultimate retirement, first retirement. I uh, noticed how you said sharpen the saw. Sounds like a Stephen Covey uh, reference there. I'm a big fan of his seven habits. I know that's one of them in there, but I really like that idea. I mean, it's something I wish I had done when I was younger. You know, it was kind of that idea when I was able to of that, you know, first retirement, because there's something valuable of stepping away. But like you mentioned, you stayed in contact with people. You didn't just drop off the face of the earth for a year and pop up one day and say, here I am, hire me. Right. You had a plan within all of it. Yes, absolutely. And and it wasn't anything that was so definitive and so scripted. There were objectives that I had. There was an idea that I wanted to pursue, albeit loosely. But people sometimes get concerned about is, oh, if I take time off or if I have a gap in my resume, I'm not going to be employable. But what was most striking to me when I returned and, and having done that TEDx talk was we're in the area of the in the era of the internet where people are going to Google you, they're going to go on LinkedIn and they're going to find out who you are. And I would get prospects or I would get referrals to new clients or new training opportunities. And I would get on a call or I would get in person and and clearly I've got experience, I've got expertise. And people would say, you know what, you've got the expertise, you've got experience, but I really want to hear what you did on this first retirement. What was that all about? And similar to what you just said, Paul, is many of them, I would say even most of them would say, I wish I had done that when I had the chance. And I'm going to encourage my kids to watch your TEDx talk. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great talk. And I would encourage anyone in our audience to listen to it. I know I watched it a while back when I learned about it. Really enjoyed it. A lot of great things in there. So kind of shifting gears here a little bit. So recently, I think it was in the last week or so, you posted on LinkedIn. They said the top skill somebody in FP&A or corporate finance needs is the ability to anticipate. And I think you laid out a couple different examples around that. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that's the most important skill for somebody in FP&A? I think a lot of people who are in finance or accounting or a technical field such as ours would say, you, know, you need to understand the foundations of finance and accounting and valuation and financial modeling and all of these technical types of skills. And then you also have a school of people who would say, you need to have all these softer skills or all of these more non-technical skills like presentation skills or communication skills or team building and teamwork skills, which obviously all of these are vitally important. But when it comes to being successful in FP&A advisory work or even just as a corporate FP&A professional, a lot of what we're doing is trying to anticipate and plan for what is going to happen. Whether we're taking a look at forecasting, which is a view of the future and planning resource deployment for what the future may bring, or whether it's putting together projections of what might happen, what could happen that we're maybe not thinking about, both of those mindsets, which are core to FP&A, is all about anticipation. Doesn't matter whether you're good at Excel or accounting or finance or valuation. What's vital for effective forecasting and projecting is thinking about what could happen based upon the information that you have, the assumptions that you are going to be adopting, what the history of relationships in the business or in the sector may present to you and combine them all together for a much more complete picture. At the same time, the A in FP&A being analysis is saying there are relationships that exist here. 
what is the synthesis actually telling us? What can we form as a conjecture about all of these observations? So to me, anticipation is saying, what might we expect to happen based upon all of the information and all the intelligence that we have? And how can we position ourselves as a team, as a person, as a company for that anticipation? And just to to take one small step aside is if you even think about human nature, the ability to anticipate is how can we make sure that we're fed, that we have shelter, that if there is something that's going to happen in the economy, that we're secure, or at least that we're prepared for it. If there is some kind of a catastrophe that's happened in our town, how can we plan effectively for that? May we anticipate it happening again? So again, even though the technical is vitally important and the non-technically is vitally important, I actually would put over all of them the ability to think ahead, to anticipate and think critically. You know, when I first saw your post, I know we went back and forth a little bit. I had to really think about that because I've never heard it phrased that way. And so it caused me to pause and kind of think. And the more you know, I've heard you explain that and think about it, it makes sense. I can see that kind of overarching idea of being able to anticipate. Right. I mean, it's why we do scenario planning, understanding and anticipating what your partners are thinking, what will happen if you do certain things, allows you to be much more strategic and much more value creator. Absolutely. I mean, as you just said, with scenario planning, I was just speaking with a group this morning and I said, very, very rarely will I marry myself to one set of assumptions, one forecast, one set of figures, because That means I'm not anticipating those assumptions changing. I'm not anticipating the future being different than that one single reality that we've arrived at. And so in FP&A, the value of anticipating is saying, well, what if all of these realities in the future change? What do we need to do to position? And how can we begin targeting that today? That's great. And I like that, you know, being able to anticipate the different scenarios. And we had uh, Jack Alexander on a little while ago, we just released his podcast and he made a comment of, well, people say, I can't anticipate a black swan. It's like, well, you can anticipate a black swan event. You may not know what it is, but they happen every six, seven years, the pandemic, you know, other housing crisis, whatever it might be, companies can anticipate that at some point that's going to happen. So if that happens, what's our contingency plan? What are we going to do? And what, what are the triggers that are going to tell us it's time to implement that? Right. And that's part of that anticipation. If you don't know what the triggers are, then what good is the scenario plan? Because you never implement it. You bet. And in terms of any kind of drivers or influences in business, you don't have to say pandemic. You could say disruption. Is there a pandemic? Is there a recession? Is there a war? Is there a hike to interest rates? All of these various disruptions you can get tangible and say, well, directly, what's the impact to the business? But otherwise, you could just say, look, what happens if there's a contraction in our sales? What happens if one of our critical suppliers or critical vendors, they themselves end up getting themselves into distress? So you can't necessarily, or you don't necessarily need to come up with something so tangible, but you can come up with pressures or disruptors or some kind of a bottleneck that you can start planning for today. And it's not just on the negative side, it's also on the positive side, opportunistic. No, I totally agree. It's it's a balance of both, looking at, okay, what happens if sales are way better than we expected? And we, you know, you might have supply chain issues or sales, 
how do we staff up to take advantage of you know that opportunity? Absolutely. Right. You know, all the, all those sort of things. So that's great. So moving on here, I just want to ask a little bit. I know you've been very active in several speaking organizations. I believe Toastmasters, National Speaking Association. I know you've done some improv in the past, some comedy improv. How has that made you a better FPNA professional? I actually tell people who come to me and say, Carl, if I were to go do one thing to further myself, if I were to invest in myself, what should I learn how to do? And naturally, a lot of FPNA people will, will say, should I learn you know, Excel? Should I learn an EPM? Should I learn Power BI? And I say, look, all of those things are going to help you. You're never going to fall behind or you're never going to get hurt by learning more and teaching yourself. But I believe that the biggest and best investment you can make in yourself is becoming a better communicator. And that could be through writing, but I think even more so it's through speaking. And the speaking that I've done through Toastmasters, which is a public club that anyone in the entire world can join, there are probably thousands of clubs all over the world, is it's practicing platform skills of being able to get in front of people and speak with confidence, articulation, and intentionality in terms of the way that you're taking a speech. When you're going to get in front of an audience in a FP&A meeting or in a, you know, a, a board meeting or a board presentation, it's one thing to have confidence in the numbers that you have and the intelligence that you're providing. But as much, if not more of that, is your body language and your presence and your physical confidence, your way to articulate or your ability to articulate what other people need to know, not just the analytical work that you've conducted. And so while I had joined Toastmasters many, many years ago, probably about 15 years ago, I say to anybody who says, oh, Carl, you know, you're so polished as a professional speaker. I say, look, you were to turn the clocks back 15 plus years. I had joined Toastmasters at PwC. And the very first speech that you give is something called an icebreaker, mm -hmm. where all you do is you stand up and you talk about yourself. And I remember I went up to the front of the group. I had note cards. I literally had note cards to talk about myself. And I remember I got hung up and I started stumbling over my words and it was a complete failure. And so when people say, you know, Carl, you've been doing this for so long and you show you're so polished in terms of your speaking, I say, but you have to start somewhere. And you come from a place of being somewhat of an amateur and being nervous and not knowing how to write and not knowing how to speak. But you put in the reps, you get the practice, you learn a whole lot more about yourself and the art and the craft of public speaking, and you can start to command credibility, attention, and authority. I remember in one of the, the Toastmasters groups I was in, I got a piece of feedback from one of the senior members and he said, Carl, the way that I would describe you is he said, when Carl speaks, people listen. And I attribute that largely to putting in the reps through Toastmasters. On the National Speakers Association front, that's more of the business of speaking. And so a lot of my business today comes through speaking, keynotes, professional development, and training. And I attribute a lot of that focus and a lot of that success to getting experience, writing, and presenting from a financial perspective. Well, thank you for sharing that. I love that answer. And you know, what I really appreciate is 
reminding people you have to put in the reps. You don't wake up one day and go, I'm going to be a great speaker, and it happens. Speaking takes a lot of practice. I've done Toastmasters. I was involved in it for a couple of years. And I know when I need to present something, I will try to practice. And when I don't, I notice the difference. I notice I don't put in the reps and prepare what I'm going to say and have a good idea of what I'm going to present, body language, how to think about things, how to impact things. It doesn't go near as well as well as it does when I really put in the time. So I really appreciate that advice. And I also love the point that you talked about, hey, you can work on technical skills, you can learn Power BI, you can learn Excel, and those are all good, and they'll help you. But being able to command a room, being able to present in a way that you can tell the story and you can influence what is going on is so valuable, especially in FP&A today, with us being viewed as value creators, right? It's no longer what I used to call FP&R where you did a little bit of planning, you did a little bit of budgeting, and you did a bunch of reporting. And you handed this huge deck to somebody. And if you were lucky, they read a page of it. You know, it's changed. Yeah, it definitely has. And to take that a step further, Paul, is, you know, from the earlier stages of a person's career and work in FP&A, I believe that the ticket to entry is having a background in, in finance or accounting or something similar. And then as you start to progress, it's, you know, understanding Excel or Google Sheets or some of these other technical abilities. But if you're going to launch from being a doer or having that R, the reporting aspect of FP&R, but if you're going to launch from being a doer or being a soldier to being a general and being a leader and being an influencer, you're going to have to be able to take those skills somewhere else. And, and this may sound a little bit strange for, for this audience, but I actually don't do nearly as much technical work today as I did earlier in my career. It's not that I'm not a master of that. I would say I, I am a master of many of those technical skills. But because I have launched more in terms of leadership and communication and influence and industry expertise, a lot of that comes from being able to get in front of a room, command the room, be an authority. And a lot of that does come through practice and exercise of communication skills. No, you make a great point there about, you know, you've put in the time, you've done the work, you can do the technical and you can speak the technical, which is important. People understand that you have the technical proficiency to do whatever's needed, but more valuable, I imagine, especially running your own business and being an advisor, training people and helping them in turnaround situations or other distressed situations where they're looking to you for advice, that ability to speak clearly, to get across a message and to influence decisions is invaluable, right? As we talk about, you know, FP&A, you know, everybody who's in FP&A that's worth their weight in salt can do an analysis, right? That's kind of bread and butter. But can you take that analysis and do the value creation and make the recommendations and help influence the business? And if you can't, you're missing that opportunity to really advance and to truly make the difference that CFOs, CEOs, and the business wants from their FP&A professionals. They want that advice. They want you to help guide them. Right. I totally agree with everything that you're saying. You know, I had gotten a question a couple of weeks ago from a, a virtual program I had done. And they said, the question was, you know, if you're going to be a CFO and you don't come from an FP&A background, how can you supervise and advise those who are the doers? And I said to this individual, I said, look, you're not going to be expected to know how to do everything. And the expectation is not that you're going to have to be a master of all of these technical skills to elevate to 
FP&A manager, director, and CFO, but you have to be able to speak the language on the technical side, but you're going to have to develop those leadership capabilities. And exactly as you said, Paul, of getting yourself into some really sticky situations and be able to alleviate the stress and anxiety that people in that room may have to be able to bridge the gap between what might be going in on, in, a, in a portfolio company and what the private equity firm on the other side may be interested in. If there's a, a default in a business, be able to mediate between what's happening in the business and what the lenders are most concerned with. So again, it's, it's vital to understand what's going on on the technical side but you have to be able to blend that technical with the non-technical and the soft skills, but, but really be able to master the communication element that is so often not taught in school nor developed in the doing that is corporate America. I agree. It's an area that is often a gap that we have to figure out on our own, that we have to put in the time, right? Learning finance, learning accounting, learning analytics, you're going to learn that in school. You're going to do all kinds of assignments to give you that basic knowledge and prepare you for the job. And then the first job, they're going to hand you some assignment that has something to do with that. But rarely ever do they sit down and, hey, let's start you right away in Toastmasters. Let's help you with your speaking. Let's focus on these things. You know, some, some managers do and they recognize it and they'll spend that time with you. But it's not ingrained in corporate America to the extent of, hey, let's get you the Excel training. Let's talk to so-and-so. Let's make sure you're technically proficient. You might spend 80% of the time there, but so much value comes from spending more time on you know, speaking and these other skills that allow us to influence. Absolutely. So I really appreciate that answer. So you know, as you look at FP&A and you've, you know, you've been in the field for a while now, and obviously the last few years have brought a, a ton of change. What do you see as maybe the biggest challenge for FP&A going forward and the biggest opportunity? That's a good question. In terms of the, the biggest changes that are bring about challenge is, I, I think a lot of it has to do, well, well, one of them has to do with technology and software. There are a lot of wonderful economical solutions that are out there. However, a lot of organizations get themselves into trouble by saying, this, the technology and the software is the solution. And I say, no, it's not the solution. It is a solution that when you combine it with established good process and trained, developed people, the software can take you to the next chapter in the life of your business or can help you scale or save tremendous lost time and improve efficiency. The challenge I think exists is there's a huge decentralization of the software. And I often talk about, you know, if you take a look 10 to 15 years ago, there were ERPs and there was Excel. And you take the outputs from the ERPs, you put it into Excel, and every company around the world was doing that. But then over the last, say, five to 10 years, there's become new, or there has become new types of software and new capabilities that at the time, we were very expensive and were focused more on the Fortune 500 than mid-market and smaller companies. And so those organizations that had the ability to invest were able to do so. And there were a small handful of providers that were very successful. 
Now, what's happening is it's going downstream into the middle market and into smaller companies, and there are even more platforms that have come out. And so it becomes a decentralization, which I actually don't think is necessarily a bad thing. It just muddies the waters and makes it a little bit more challenging to navigate. Is you have a company that says, we know what we know, but we have no idea what we don't know. What are other companies out there doing? And as I had just mentioned, I did a program this morning with a very large organization that brought me in for that very purpose. They said, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what other organizations like us are doing. We don't know whether our choice of software is the right one. Can you tell us? And I said, look, there are lots of great software providers out there, but the challenges is being able to navigate what is the right solution for the industry or for the sector or for the size or for the maturity of that business? And can the platform scale with what that business needs? And can the business also navigate without having to bring in an implementation specialist every single time something needs to be tweaked? So I think that that is is one of the largest challenges. Another one would probably be around um, universal consistency across the FP&A team. Oftentimes when I get brought in to do professional development or advisory work, it is a, Carl, we've got a great team here, but everyone is disconnected. Everyone's doing things their own way. This group over here is not talking to this group. This group over here is not giving the information back to that group that they need. There's all this misalignment. And so what I sometimes say to try to alleviate these concerns is, clients, just so you're aware, We are at the point in humanity, in history, where our companies are the largest they have ever been. They are more complicated than they have ever been. And what makes FP&A a really neat place to be in right now, where, to address your question of what's the opportunity, is we're at the forefront, we're at the cusp of a profession and of a field that is changing in real time. A lot of these organizations say, oh, we're so far behind. We have to play catch up. And I would say, no, you're right in the middle of it right now. While you might feel like you're behind some of your competition or you could be doing a better job, this field is changing literally in real time. So it's a tremendous time and opportunity to be an FP&A to be able to say, how can we improve our processes right now? How can we hire and develop our people right now? What are the platforms that we can start growing into right now? And how do we build a culture that encompasses all of that to build the FP&A team that we want? Rather than seeing finance and FP&A as a support function or a reactive function, almost every organization I've talked to in recent times says, no, we want FP&A to be driving growth. We want them to be driving process improvement. We want them to be proactive. We want them to be partners to non-financial people. And so the investment and the desire is there. It's how can we take advantage and execute on it? No, I think that's great. And it sounds like to a certain extent, both the opportunity and the challenge overlap a little bit in with all this change in technology, right? It's exploding. I mean, the number of planning tools out there, it feels like every day somebody's launched a planning tool because, you know, the valuations and the money that's being thrown at this problem is pretty incredible. And you know, we had on a digital transformation specialist on an earlier episode and I really liked the way she kind of talked about that opportunity and I think it goes along with what you were saying of look, you're not necessarily behind and a software isn't going to fix your problem, 
right? So often we think, well, once I get the billing system in place, everything will be better and I'll be able to do the analysis I want. Or once we get this new planning tool or we get the new ERP integrated across the whole company. And really, it's about acting strategically is how she put it. The uh, London School of Economics did a study and there were two key things they found. Act strategically for transformations and change management. And then she added a third element to that that I really liked. Get your house in order. Make sure your data is in such a way and your processes that you can implement this. And if you do those things and you've been thoughtful in what tool you've selected, you'll be fine because there are many tools that any company can use, right? I mean, I think I was looking the other day and I came up with 85 planning tools out there. Who knows how many ERPs beyond that, right? You can find something for everything. So it's really more, like as you talked about, it's that opportunity of making sure you're thinking about things strategically and you're putting the things in place to make your team successful and thinking about how am I going to scale in five years? What am I going to look like in seven years? Is this the right tool for that? Or do I recognize in three years, I'm going to probably have to upgrade again? And what does that mean for processes and the team as a whole? Right. And, and this goes back to you know the value of anticipation of being able to say, what do we think the next 12 months need to look like? What do we think our three-year strategic plan is going to be? How do we think the world may change and be able to position for that? You know, I sometimes talk about, you know, four stages of maturity of a level one, two, three, and four. And I'm not going to get so deep into it here, but I had surveyed a group of people about a year ago and I said, where are you on this maturity curve? And what's astounding is, you know, I work with a handful of Fortune 100 companies and they say, look, out of level, out of four levels, we're probably a level two and a half. And you would take a look at a Fortune 100 company, you know, you as a consumer, and you would say, I can't believe that that company would only say they're at a two and a half. I engage with them. I would think that if I lifted up the hood on the vehicle, I would see, you know, a glistening machine on the inside. But the reality, whether it's with a giant corporation or a small entrepreneurial company, you never get to the finish line. Just because you do this implementation, you say, now this is going to solve all of our problems, well, it's going to open up a whole new set of other problems. And then the world's going to change with you know, around you. The floor is going to get pulled up from underneath your feet, and you're going to have to figure out some other problems that you need to address. And so it's constantly moving, constantly anticipating, but being familiar with what's out there and what can solve your problem. Now, I love that, being familiar with what's out there and understanding what can solve your problems. So that's a great answer about both, you know, kind of the opportunity and challenge. So as you've looked over your career, this is a question we like to ask everybody. If you had to look back at your, your career, what achievement are you most proud of? Something you would share in an interview? What I am most proud of, and, you know, it's it's interesting looking back in earlier parts of my career and and not really realizing it at the time of this is one of those moments that I'm never going to forget, is working with clients who are in the thick of it and they're stressed out, they're anxious about where they are, they're concerned about you know, possibly running out of money or going out of business. And they come to me and they say, we need help, but we're not really sure what we need to do. Can you help us? And a former colleague of mine used to commonly use analogies to the medical profession and saying, look, I'm an internist, I'm coming in, and I'm going to do an overview of the body to see where is the pain. But it's not just where is the pain, what's the root cause of 
you know, this chronic illness. And then serving as a surgeon who can make the tangible changes to the ill patient and hopefully have that patient come out in a better circumstance on the other side and be able to live a life and be happy with what you did for them. And while that may sound a little bit self-centered of, you know, thinking about what I did for them, it goes beyond that and thinking about the jobs that they've been able to create, the legacy that they've been able to build for their community and for their children and for the people who have worked with them for 20 years. And the two companies that I can think of, one was a long time ago, there was a very, very distressful situation. The company was literally on the, on the verge of blowing up. And I came in with a small team and we rescued this company. And this gentleman uh, who owned the business, I remember years later after you know, we turned this business around, I went and I came to visit him, brought me into his office. He sat me down. He called in the CFO. He called in the COO. And I was literally sitting in this chair with the CEO across from me, the CFO on one side, the COO on the other. And he said, Carl, I just want to tell you the revenue that we're doing right now. And they had more than quintupled the business since I was working with them. The profitability was extraordinary. And he said, Carl, anytime you need anything, you let me know what I can do for you. And then a second company who I still keep in touch with. I mean, I keep in touch with both of them. But another company I had worked with when they were a startup and they have increased the size of their business probably over 40-fold. And when I talk to this business owner, he comes back and he says, Carl, we never, ever would have gotten to this place without you having been by our side. And to me, half of what I do is business and FP&A. Half of what I do is being a support, a piece of support, a counselor, some ways a therapist, but somebody who people can count on, who they can trust when times get really difficult and see them through to the other side. No, thank you for sharing. And that what a great example where you made a difference for those companies. You think of all the jobs that created, all the people's jobs that saved, right? That's real impact in the world. And I like how you mentioned, you know, with with those situations in an FPA, sometimes you're being a little bit of the therapist. You're being that, you know, person that they just need to listen to and help them work through things. Sometimes it's not about the analysis you've done. It's about listening and helping them figure out what they need to do. And you know what, Paul, is sometimes, you know, even though I'm coming in as an outside FP&A advisor and I've walked the walk, I've been doing this for a really long time, usually those who are in the business know the business a whole lot better than I do. And while I can come in and do analysis, they understand their business inside and out. So I need to be there to help facilitate and help augment what they are currently doing so that they can be better at what they're currently doing. It's not me coming in to replace them. It's me coming in to help lift them up and enable them to do what I know that they're capable of. And that makes a lot of sense. So uh, moving on here, we have just a couple questions left. One is a little more kind of on the personal fun side. What's something that not many people would know about you? Something they wouldn't find online? Something unique? Well, you know, one thing that I think if people did enough digging, they could probably find out that I have uh, five-year-old twin boys. 
that was a surprise at the time. It's a surprise <laughs> uh, every day since. Um, but they're they're a lot of fun. They're a lot of trouble. But uh, you know, they they challenge us every single day. So I think that that's certainly one. And a lot of people sometimes don't realize. They say, you know, how is it that you're you're doing what you're doing on the professional front, but then you're clearly a busy guy on the on the back end with family and. A lot of what it comes down to is just prioritizing what's important to you. But I would say maybe a, another piece of information that people wouldn't know about me is uh, many years ago, I had taken a trip to Japan and I had for a very long time always had a, a deep admiration of Mount Fuji. And I had just loved the pictures and I said, I really want to go see it up front. And I remember going to Mount Fuji and it was covered in clouds and a couple of weeks later, I said, I'm going to go back because the first time it was covered in clouds. And the second time, it was still covered in clouds. And because I was disappointed, I decided that I was going to get up close and personal to Mount Fuji. And I actually ended up climbing it almost all the way to the top during non-climbing season, during the wintertime, by myself with no other people on the mountain. And I have the pictures to prove myself being above the clouds, seeing the summit, but ultimately getting to a point where the summit was just covered in snow. And rather than saying, I'm going to get to the top, I turned around and I went home. Probably a hard decision, but I will say a smart decision. Having done some mountaineering <laughs> and climbing, and I took a mountaineering class when I was in California. I've hiked, you know, Whitney. So I haven't gone as, you know, some of the mountains in other places, but I can definitely say there's a time when, especially when you're alone like that, winter, people probably didn't know where you exactly you were at. There's a time when it makes sense just to turn around and, you know, kind of lick the wounds and say, that's for another day. Right. And, uh, you know, it wasn't my, my smartest decision in my life to get on that mountain, but it probably was one of the smarter decisions in my life to, you know, suck up my pride and, and turn around and, and do the right thing. And it's became, it's become a story. Well, and that's just it. It makes for a great story. And, you know, one day you'll get up there and get to get to that top, hopefully. So, you know, our show here, we're uh, sponsored by DataRails. You know, they're one of the planning tools we talked a little bit about earlier. And they're one of those planning tools that specifically keeps users in Excel. They build all their functionality around Excel. And so one of the questions we like to ask everybody, since everyone in finance uses Excel, it's the tool of choice for most finance professionals. What's your favorite Excel function and why? All right. So if I had to pick one, I would probably say it is offset. And the reason why I like offset is there are two functionalities built within the function is what I call, and I don't even know what Microsoft would call it, but I call it locational offset. And then the other I call dynamic offset. And it allows the movement and navigation throughout the field uh, of Excel in really interesting ways that no other function can accomplish. And then if you're going to allow me to pick a second one, I would probably pick indirect. And even though some of the Excel gurus out there would say indirect is one of the worst functions out there, I would completely disagree and say that in FP&A, indirect allows you to accomplish certain tasks that nothing else can. And when you use it intelligently and sparingly, only when you actually need to use it, when you combine it with offset and lots of other functions, it is truly magical. You know, I, I've used both those in many of models where you're trying to do, you know, multiple cost center type spreadsheets where you're referencing the same thing and indirect can be very valuable. You know, offset can be another valuable one. 
I was hoping you might say merge and center like Jordan we had on <laughs> earlier, you know, be total contrarian out there. I was listening to that one. And when he said that, I was like, you know what? I'm actually in his camp. There are lots of people out there that say that's the absolute worst thing that you can do. And I will admit I am in his camp and I will use that as well. I don't have a problem with it. You just have to know how to navigate. I'm more of I've gone toward the you know, center cross selection, but I agree with the logic, right? As long as you know how to use it and use it properly, there's nothing wrong with that formula. It's the way we use it that's the problem. And I get everybody, why everybody hates it because we all inherit that file from somebody who's used it everywhere and it takes you an hour to get your data in any structure you can do anything with. So I totally get kind of both sides of that. But I had a laugh when he gave that answer because I've always <laughs> kind of been on that other camp and he was holding to it. Yeah, well, that's fine. Everybody's got their own opinions of, of the rules that they are happy breaking. Well, and that's exactly it. As long as we get the job done, that's what matters. So last question I have for you here is what advice would you offer our audience if they asked you, what should they do today to become a better FP&A professional? And I think I'd have an idea where you're going to go with that based on some of our conversation. But you know, what's that one thing you would tell them to focus on? Yeah, I, I think you probably do too. I, I would say become a better communicator. I would say you know learn some of those technical skills that are very, very important. That's not going to hurt you to learn, but to be better at what you do to get noticed, to become an influencer and get you know, spotlighted as somebody who's going to move up to management and directorship and leadership is become a better public speaker. Go take Toastmasters or go join a Toastmasters club. Go analyze other people's speeches and understand what it is that you like about it. Identify other speakers that you don't like and what do you not like about them, but start developing your confidence in the spoken and written word and see how magical it is to your FPNA career. Thank you, Carl. And you know, on that note, we'll go ahead and close. And we really enjoyed having you on the show. A lot of great advice and can't wait for this to come out in a few weeks and for audience to get a chance to listen to all your great advice. So thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate you having me, Paul. Thanks so much. Thanks.